I'm a theater person. I am a storyteller at heart, have always been. My wife is fond of saying that when I start talking about things, she said, uh-oh, here comes another one of Todd's tall tales. And we do have a – it is a TTT shorthand in the family. They will they will bandy that about. I have a degree in psychology from BYU, which will come to play in what we're going to be talking about today. You know, I have gone on and done interesting things. I've taught classes, no classes in literature, but some classes in psychology and a couple in philosophy, and one or two in history, which may also come to bear. I'm an associate provost at a university here that is headquartered here, but my love is first and always music. Music and story, music and story. They cannot be separated in my mind. The voice you just heard belongs to Todd Wenty. My name is Todd Wenty. I am male. Uh, I am... (laughs) Sorry. Possibly not pertinent to today's discussion. Just in case you couldn't tell. Boy, I've never been asked to introduce myself this way. Who joined me before this time of social distancing to talk about Jonathan Gottschall's book, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. I'm your host, Liz Christensen, and it's all in the telling. Welcome to episode 29 with my guest, Todd Wenty. Todd was the perfect guest to discuss a book that is all about proposing a unified theory of storytelling. I've been sitting on his interview for a while, and I'm so glad I did, because I feel like this is the perfect time to have a conversation about how stories help us navigate complex social problems. Todd and I had a long interview, and this week, I'll be giving you the best of the first half of it. Listen through to the end of the episode to hear the episode extra, a chance to hear briefly from Josh Curtis who called in to In the Telling to beautifully share his thoughts about what he's doing with art and entertainment while working from home and social distancing. Okay, you have your hands on a lot of storytelling pies, so... I kind of do. Enumerate (laughs) them for me. I have been a performer, a stage performer in multiple shows, including shows like 1776, Elf the Musical. I have also been a director of shows. Most recently, I directed All Shook Up which was a show built around Elvis's music, cotton candy for the mind, not even mental floss, not even a palate cleanser. It was cotton candy and had a (laughs) wonderful time. Worked with some wonderful people. I think you were one of those. Um, (laughs) Currently, I am also involved with the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. So I do a lot of music with them. What part Um, do you sing? I sing second tenor. I am in the middle of my second book. The first book was more of a modern parable. Uh, the second book is a it's a mystery thriller. We'll see how things go. I have a I have a blog that I do, which is more about uh, what it means to be a middle aged white male father that is not necessarily living in New York City and does not necessarily have fifty thousand dollars in disposable income. And how do you do those things at that point in time? How do you take your kids to see a movie? How do you? Make sure that you have the latest styles and trends and fashions. It's it's kind of a fun little blog. I used to be a I used to sell men's clothing, men's fashion, and so that's that's a that's a horrible disease to have. And then I also have a video channel that is called Daily One Eighty. You can you can find if you anybody was willing to look for it, you can find it by looking for Everyday Dad nineteen ninety four on YouTube, uh, or type in Todd Wenty Daily One Eighty. And we're a little behind on the daily part, but you know we get a, we get about three or four out a week. You're you're still missing one. Which one am I missing? You haven't talked about your podcast. Oh, I haven't talked about the podcast. Yeah, the Legendarium podcast. 
That is a lot of storytelling. I'm kind of a little thing. overwhelmed with myself right now. I think I'm doing way too much. Um, Just having to list it out right now. Yeah, there. yeah. I've never – I haven't done that. I haven't done that before. And that leaves off two or three things that we talked about before the recording started. So, yeah, things are busy. <laughs> How to live an overscheduled life with Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, badly. Uh, lots of Coke Zero and lots of popcorn. So between those two, you you kind of stay alive. Awesome. Okay, let's dive into the thing we're going to talk about today. Oh my goodness. Yes, I'm so excited. So I picked this book for you specifically. Because, really? Yes, because because you are in all of these different realms. <laughs> um, you're like jack of all trades kind of. And master of none. Well, that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, if the whole premise of this book could be summed up by we have a biological and emotional and neurological need yes. to tell and receive stories. Yes. I feel like you have a breadth of that. Thank you. That we can talk about. So let's dive in. What is it you want to start with? So the the thing that I wanted to start with, maybe the maybe the first thing that's worth noting uh, about me and about the way that I've that I've grown up in story is that I was not a reader at first in my life. And it wasn't until I discovered comic books that I became a reader. And after comic books, I became a just a voracious reader. And for me, stories, and I'm an only child. So I also had to entertain myself. Um, I was always, I was always in what he refers to as the, as Neverland. And so I spent large portions of my life in Neverland. Some people say I really don't leave Neverland, and that's probably accurate somewhat. Talk to me about his version of Neverland. His version of Neverland was, uh, as he described it, was the place where we go, the place where children go primarily to play. And for adults, it's the place where we go when we daydream. And it's the place that we try things out, where where we confront problems, bigger problems than we would confront in real life. We It's where children slay dragons and they become superheroes. And, and when I was that age, I became Luke Skywalker or I became Iron Man or I became Spider-Man. I was fascinated with comic books. Um, or I became uh, Derek Wildstar from the Star Blazers. We'd, we inhabit these characters or we, or we inhabit the worlds that these characters inhabit and we practice what they go through as ways of solving problems, as ways of exploring what what is right and wrong, what's good and bad. Uh, it's why I was never Darth Vader and I was never a stormtrooper. But sometimes I kind of envied those kids who could be, you know. And it was it was a world of shared constructs. It's a world of shared perspectives, and it's collaborative, and it is very welcoming. At least it can be. And for younger children, it's certainly. Uh, it certainly is. And as we grow older, this idea of Neverland, we, we get a little older, we get to we get to eight or twelve or fifteen, and we tend to pack Neverland away into tiny, tiny little slivers. And we say the only slivers that are acceptable are the ones where I'm pretending that I'm gonna be on a championship winning football team or where I'm winning the I, I'm I'm winning the the state championship basketball game by sinking the winning free throw and and we allow ourselves or I'm becoming a ballerina and I'm actually going to be on Broadway or any of these kinds of tinier stories that sound like maybe they have a chance and they're not quite so far flung and we don't run around with lightsabers anymore because we're grown up and his contention is no 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 Neverland we're we are in Neverland way more than we think we are. Neverland is the place where stories live. And when I when I first heard him say that, of course, immediately I went to 
I, th- I thought of Peter Pan and I thought of Captain Hook. I played Captain Hook one time. Terribly misunderstood individual. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, he, but he talks about he, – he made a reference – do you remember Ben Stiller, Walter Mitty? Yes, I was Secret Life say, of Walter Mitty. Yeah, so when I when he first said Neverland, I was like Peter Pan, but then as soon as he started talking about what it was, I was like, oh, Secret Life of Walter, Walter Mitty. Walter Mitty. <laughs> and he said he made a quote. He said some people some people heap scorn on those Walter Mitties who build castles in the air. But later he points out uh and and I have always felt we all do that. We're all I remember talking to a gentleman. He was uh I was 14. And he was 50, 55. He was a, a vice president of a bank, uh, a, a fairly a fairly well-to-do individual. You know, he's had a good career. And we were talking about stuff and he says, oh, I built skyscrapers. I said, no, you don't. You're a bank guy. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm a bank guy, but I built skyscrapers. He said every now and again, about three or four times a day, I lean back and I say, what if I were to build skyscrapers? I would build them that would look like this and like this and like this. And that was when I was 14, that was my first glimpse that grownups had these daydreams that they held on to as well. He does a wonderful job in this book of laying out the idea that, that that really is one of the things that saves us. It's one of the things that helps us maintain our sanity is that we still maintain this connection to Neverland. Even as we grow up, we just are not necessarily as as fair about it. We don't talk about it quite so much. And it's really too bad. Because of that level of what's socially acceptable in Neverland now. Yeah. And the idea that somehow those people who are in Neverland too much are out of touch with reality. And I think as he weaves through this book, I think one of the things that maybe bears some examination by us as a culture is that the people who spend most of their time in Neverland are the ones that are shaping the world around us for the rest of us. Talk to me about, I mean, I've read it, so I think I know where you're headed, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Steve Jobs and stuff is where you're <laughs> at, yeah? Sort of, kind of. Um, Steve Jobs and Dan Brown and and the Bronte sisters. And there's a point where he talks about, he was talking about the, the storytelling mind. And he said that it seems that much of Western thought has been crafted by individuals who are a little too close to mad, to, to madness. Um, and he was, he was talking about some psychological experiments uh, or psychological studies, not experiments, studies that have been done that identify the fact that fiction writers in particular and poetry writers on a, on a huge level, that, I think he said 40 times more likely, poetry writers are 40 times more likely to struggle with bipolar disorder and that fiction writers are seven times more likely to have some form of mental illness, but certainly to have to struggle with unipolar disorder. I had a friend and I have remembered for now for 15 years, I keep reminding myself of her observation of me when I'm in the middle of a creative project, whether it was preparing for a concert or preparing for a show she looked at me and she said, you are, you are different when you are getting ready for a show. And she said, and I am impressed at the fact that you seem to hold it together so well. And I looked at her and I said, the fact that you think I do means I'm a better actor than you think. I think one of the risks of being willing to be in, sto- in Neverland so much, to, be a, to commit yourself to being a, an effective storyteller is that it does bring with it 
all of the emotional upheaval that characters go through. And it does it in such rapid succession sometimes because we, we devour material, prepare material, and we do it in such an intense manner. And then we perform it on stage for multiple people to see uh, over and over again that by the time we're done, we, uh, by the time I'm done, I am just completely wrung out. That leaves, that leaves an individual very vulnerable to depression, to struggles with that. And so it wasn't a surprise to me that he said, oh yeah, poets especially, they are 40 times more likely than average people to have this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, I, I, thank you. I get that. I get that. And then I start connecting the dots to things like, to things that I see. We, we have the Heath Ledgers who invest them so much, invest themselves so much in telling the stories that they can't escape from it. And it takes their lives. We have the Kurt Cobains that are invested so much in telling those stories that they lose their lives in the process. And we have so many of our other popular icons that are engaged in telling stories that their connection to real life, to the life that the rest of us live of paying bills and making the, making the mortgage work and trying to make ends meet and having casual friendships that you see when you're down shopping for groceries and all that kind of stuff. They're very disconnected from those. And, and as a result, perhaps that's, that does carry with it a certain amount of, of mental illness or propensity for it. Don't you think, though, that like if this author was here to like <laughs> devil's advocate for us a little bit, that he'd be like, oh, but, the, but your normal life of paying bills and going to the grocery store, that's just a narrative you're telling yourself anyway. Like you've just constructed oh, yeah. for yourself a story about your life that's pretty normal. In fact, it's – yeah, because let's let's be honest. After my introduction, obviously my story is not my, – my life is not the normal storytelling life, right? That's not – I'm not, maybe I'm more normal, maybe I'm less normal, but I'm certainly busy. Um, one of the things that he said that was, that was really interesting to me was the idea that we, we tell our self narratives where we are the prime character, we're the protagonist in our own stories, and that we use our history, our memories, and our time in Neverland to craft what that narrative is going to be. And then, of course, as he goes, as he's going through the book at different places, he pokes huge holes in how good our memories are. Oh, yeah. Right? This part was so fascinating for me because I had this moment where I became friends again with someone I had dated a long time ago. Okay. And it ended poorly. And there was a good <laughs> space in there where we were not friends. At all. Okay. And, and then there was a space of non-communication at all. Um, and then the space of like cool indifference. Mm -hmm. And eventually it worked its way back around to being friends. And the conversation that made it so that friendship was possible was an over what actually happened. And the narrative I had told myself and constructed for myself from my memory and yeah. my storytelling brain and his narrative, they were, they could not exist yeah. in the same reality. Yeah. But we were both totally convinced that that's how it went and at some point in the conversation i just went like okay the the true reality is both then because if that's how you experienced it and you made choices based off of that experience and had feelings like how is that not real yeah so we're just gonna i'm just gonna accept that the history of what happened is these two completely incompatible things simultaneously and I'm just going to move on. Yeah. You <laughs> because know, that dichotomy is too hard. That's a trope that is used in a lot of, in, in a lot of, um, I shouldn't say a lot. It's a trope that is used from time to time in 
dramas and television dramas in sitcoms of two people saying, well, no, here's what happened. And we see a totally different kind. We see one story and then somebody else goes, no, no, no. Here's what happened. And I'm, th- of course, I'm thinking to myself, this is a perfect one for friends because Joey and Chandler would tell totally different stories about something as simple as getting Chinese food. I mean, those two guys would, they, they would see totally different things. They would respond to them differently. They would, they would acknowledge things differently and they would be threatened by things differently. But both of them would have some kind of a story to tell about just getting Chinese food, but they would be different stories. And because they're different stories, it, the, the, the trajectory that their lives take around things as simple as going back to that restaurant or any of those kinds of things could be dramatically changed. One of my favorite episodes of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation is one where Will Riker is accused of committing murder. They play the scene out. Maybe it's Deep Space Nine. I think it might be Deep Space Nine. Anyway, sorry, I'm too many Star Trek episodes. Um, <laughs> they but did they, a lot. But they played. They played all three. They played his version and another person's version and then a third person's version. And all of these characters delivering the same lines, delivering the doing pretty much the same blocking, but doing it with different motives, different ideas, different subtext, and all of those yeah. pieces. And uh, just how much fun is that? How real is that? You, I think you've been present when I told a story about my daughter and about our growing up experience. And I, I, told, I tell a story about making my children cry. And it's a horrible moment. It's a horrible parenting moment. But now it's kind of funny. Um, and the way I can tell it makes it even funnier, which I'm sure means that I'm remembering it completely wrong. <laughs> um, but my, my daughter, uh, I, I was telling the story at one point in time, and my daughter said, yep. That's exactly how it happened. I remember it exactly that way. And I'm like, I'm not sure you do. <laughs> but but I've controlled that narrative enough that she does. But I think also the fact that I control the narrative is something that she has built into her narrative. Oh, if I'm not sure, I can ask dad. Dad will come up with a good story about why we do this or why it happened or whatever. I, I find that really fascinating. I remember as a child certain events fairly clearly. And after reading this book, I'm not sure I remember anything fairly clearly anymore. Um, you, you've decided you're an unreliable narrator. Uh, I'm an, I'm an unreli- I am an interesting narrator, <laughs> but I am an unreliable fact source. So if anyone was going to, was going to fact check my life, They'd probably come back and say, no, you're a crazy person. Although there is one thing that I do remember happened. I was locked in a dryer when I was three, uh, four years old. It was closed. It was turned on. And I was left there for a period of time. I do know that that story is true. I have corroboration of that. So that one's true. But that was also um, not very <laughs> artistically told as a story. You left oh, out no. all of the details I that did. would make I that did. objective and interesting. And I, could, I, and I could share those, but it's not about my stories. It's about what he tells us about <laughs> our stories and how we tell them. One of the things that was fascinating for me in the reading, for me, this started to be really important when I, be, when I found myself in a management role. Because I could see people telling their narratives, telling their stories, and getting bent out of shape over something that was not happening. But it was happening for them. They perceived it as happening. And so as a result, it was. And they reacted to it. And, and it drove lots of crazy behaviors. And so I started, I started learning to, to, in that kind of a moment, I, I got to be really careful about taking immediate action based on any one person's story. Because it's going to be 
incomplete and rendered from a from an incredibly interesting perspective for them, but not necessarily filling in some of the other details. Not because they're trying to be malicious, and not because they're trying to be a liar, but because they're completely oblivious to some of the other things that are going on. They're not paying attention because the storytelling brain doesn't have time to catch that. It it catches the pieces that are important to protect us, yeah. to protect our belief of ourselves, of where we're going, of why we're a good person. Nobody believes they're a bad person. And so it's been really interesting for me as I've as I've watched those things to then read some of the things that he says about how people fight to protect their narrative of themselves as good. They can't admit that they did anything wrong. And I've started to be a little bit more thoughtful. I'm not sure I'm good at it yet. One of the things that I think was that it was really interesting and tremendously uncomfortable was his conversation about morals and moral storytelling, especially when he started talking about religious perspectives. Do you, how oh, did yeah. you feel about that? Well, so when he talks about how the most powerful stories that have stuck around the longest are all the religious ones, yeah, um, I was like, well, yeah, okay, I agree with that. I mean, if you you look at all of the cultures in ancient civilizations, what they worshipped or how they explained yes. the creation of the universe, yeah, those are the stories that last the longest. Yes. That didn't bother me. And it seemed to me like he was making an assertion that every story is a moral story. Mm. Uh, maybe not about... <laughs> Oh, how do I want to say that? Maybe not about like the same set of values. Yes. But it's all dealing with morality. Yes. With what is right and wrong. With yeah. what is with with what is desirable and what is not desirable. Especially when we're talking about fiction. Um the place that it was that it was a little bit uncomfortable for me, not because I disagreed with him, but because I do agree with him and I've bought into this before. I taught a philosophy class where I challenged the class. They were predominantly uh, from a particular faith. And I said, the myth of this individual, and they all went, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't call that a myth. I said, I absolutely can. And they're like, no, 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 no. Myths are not true. Myths are fake. And I know that this story is true. And I said, hold on, hold on. Myths, especially according to, we were, we were doing a reading in, in philosophy. I said, according to this person, myth is a story that we use to help us outline values, what is desirable in life. And in that context, I can call it a myth. It says nothing about its truth or falseness. It is about whether or not we use it to help us decide how to behave. And they all kind of stared at me like a row of open mailboxes, like, uh, and I'm like, I'm sorry, guys, that's, Let's put all of our biases aside for a second. Let's let's put whether or not we agree with all those things. Let's put whether or not you feel like you are com compelled to believe that way or not and talk about it from that description. So as soon as he started talking about the myths that we share, I was like, absolutely, absolutely. And then I found myself going, I better be careful how I, <laughs> how I share some of these with people because I am a person of faith. I do subscribe rightly or wrongly, according to many people, whatever they're going to choose, I it's the way I choose to live. And I'm honest about the fact that it's a choice. I choose to live a life of faith. And so my acceptance or rejection of some of those myths becomes a little bit of a thorny issue. Todd and I spoke about our religious faith and stories for a bit before we cycle back to the book Jonathan Gottschall wrote. He, he makes a big point that fiction which we can 
we can take these myths and lump them in as part of fiction uh, because of the, the way that they tell stories of people and of good and bad, protagonists, challenges to overcome and all these kinds of things, that that fiction, these stories, help us as a people to have a common set of values around which we say, this is desirable, this is not. In ancient times, we did it in small groups around fires. As we grew older, whether it was on the savannah or in the mountains or around the hearth, we still told those stories until technology moved along that allowed us to start having these communal experiences separately, reading books, watching videos, binge watching Netflix, all of those kinds of things. We can do them in our own, on our own, but they are still something that we share with other people who are doing these same things. We just may not do it in the same place. Unless, of course, you're seeing, oh, brother, where art thou in a movie theater? And then if you're seeing it with me, I'm the only one laughing because everybody else is not aware that it was a ripoff, a complete ripoff of Homer. And I'm I'm looking at it when it says, you know, this is from the Odyssey and everybody's staring at it. I started laughing at that moment in time because I knew what I was going to get and nobody else was laughing. And I'm like, so when he talks in the, he talks in the book about movie theaters, we all go and we all have this communal experience. I'm like, yeah, not all the time. Not all the time. <laughs> Sometimes. For me, that, that was Twilight when he uh, first came in to the room around the glass door, right? Yeah. And like, you know, cinematically this moment is coming because the underscore changes the, the, pacing slows down right they use the purdy lens that softens everything light scorches and he comes in and there's i kid you not an audible like (gasps) in the movie theater and it wasn't what was happening on the screen i was like this is a trope this is what we do this is how we tell these stories yes fine but knowing that my age gender demographic was predominant in there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that we still got uh I just burst out laughing. Yeah. Because I was like, you all just got played so hard. Yep. Yep. One of the things that he doesn't talk an awful lot about in this book is that there are storytellers who are thoughtful about their craft. While we may be suckers for story, he says that several times. We are suckers for story. Um, and we are. And people who say, no, I'm not, I don't, I don't read fiction. I'm just, I'm a nonfiction person. Those are the people that I look at and I go, really, really? So tell me about the football game last night. Oh man, you should have seen it. They were back on the, and I'm like, you're telling a story. You're telling a story. You're not giving facts. You're telling a story. It, it has been interesting to me to watch, for me to watch and to participate in the process of learning how to be a better storyteller and to learn how to more quickly more completely, more expertly, more deviously suck people in on story. I'm I'm not going to say I'm I'm in the in the top 100, but I think that I'm pretty doggone good at it. And I know that because there are times I've I, for instance when I've directed a show, there are times that I can sit in the back and I hear those audible gasps. I hear people go, "Oh, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it may have been good material that I was working with, but I got you on that one. And I'm thrilled with it. I love that part. He was talking about how cool it is that knowing it's a story doesn't change the emotional processing your brain does. Yes. If it was real. So like the same MRI things are happening in your brain, even when you know it's a story. So years ago, uh, I had a conversation with a friend of mine by the name of Steve. Uh, he's a mentor of mine. He was a teacher. Um, and, and he continues to be a very good friend and a mentor to me. And we, we have, we have lunch every now and again. We had a conversation probably 
it's probably been 34 years, 34, 35 years ago. I had done something abysmally stupid. I will not bore you with the story. <laughs> um, <laughs> wah, wah. Um, but I, I, I looked at him and I said, well, you know what they say, experience is the best teacher. And he looked at me serious as a heart attack, at least as I remember it. And he said, experience is the only teacher, but vicarious work is available for most things. It's called books. <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I was like, thank you. Um <laughs> And I have continued to use that, although now I think I would turn around and I would say vicarious experience is available. It's called story because we're telling the same stories over and over and over again. That impacted me very powerfully, especially as he talks about the idea that if we're watching it, our brains respond to it. If we're hearing it, our brains respond to it. And that is perhaps the most powerful indicator that our brains biologically were designed for it. Because it gives us a place to practice without having to suffer death when we fail. He does he says it very differently, but that's that's what I took from that. That all that that most mammals I think he says um all most mammals um and all intelligent ones engage in play. And talking primarily about the young, where they do things that are going to be required of them as adults, as a, as adults of their species. And that play is where they practice what they will have to do. Well, stories for us are where we have to do that. And then he makes a wonderful, wonderful statement. He makes the point that says that those of us who read more, especially read more fiction, are better in social situations. I would just, I would love to just hold it up and say, ha, all of you, bite me, all right? Um... (laughs) I mentioned earlier that in the Legendarium right now, we're doing a lot of Brandon Sanderson and that we've been talking about Oathbringer. There are some uh, portions in that in that series of stories that for me, they are not rehearsal. They are not practice. They are cathartic, eviscerating moments to pull open what I have been going through and remind me that I need to be more thoughtful about them, that they cannot be washed underneath the, they, they can't be brushed underneath the rug. They can't just be allowed to float away in the, in the detritus of our lives or of my life. I have to hold on to the lesson because without those lessons, I will not be as well prepared to handle the next difficult social situation. It's been very, it's been a lot of fun. And certainly as I read the book, I I found myself coming back to that and saying, oh, this is why I'm sucked into some of these stories so easily because they do mirror what I'm going through. And I am in certain situations that I am dealing with right now. I am in an absolute no man's land. I know people have gone through these things before me. I am finding the pieces that they have used and some of the pieces that they have used are not very functional for me. So I'm looking for other stories, other people who have gone through these things or other representations of people who are going through these things that I can use to help me practice and be ready for them so that when I face them, I don't face them and say, well, hell, I have no idea what I'm doing next. I get a chance to say, well, hell, not sure this is going to work, but we'll try this. And, and for me, that's worth the time that I spend reading. That's worth the time that I spend listening. That's worth the time that I spend conversing with people about these ideas because that's, that's what it's going to be useful for. How do I, how do I make sure I, 
I do as little damage as possible, that I am as clear as possible at being able to lay out what is desirable and what is not desirable in some of these situations as we face them moving forward. There was a time in college that I was adapting a bunch of children's fairy tales for a children's theater piece. And they were like horrible. They were these German ones. They weren't the Grimm brothers. German fairy tales. Right. There was this one where like the boy sucks his thumb. So the tailor comes and cuts his thumb. Yes. Right. Slovenly Peter is what it's called. If anyone wants to not sleep well tonight. But it's a whole collection of tales. And I was diving into Was the butcher's tale in that one? Um, I only remember the ones that I ended up using okay. in the piece. Yeah, the butcher's tale you would never have used. That was the one that he refers to in the book where the they, oh, yeah, tell it, yeah. Tell it, tell it. When, when the, some kids are watching their father slaughter a pig, and a little later on they say, "Let's play butcher. You be the pig." And one boy stabs his brother in the in the throat, and then screams. And so the mother comes down and pulls the sword or pulls the knife out of the little boy's neck. And stabs the other little boy in the heart to kill him, to punish him for having killed his brother. And then she runs back upstairs where she's left the baby in the tub and the baby has drowned. And then the father comes home and kills the wife for having... uh, It's just horrible. It's this... And I'm like, oh, yeah, fairy tales. They're (laughs) delightful, aren't they? I'm not sure what that is. Don't look at... Don't look at butchers. Uh, Is that why we stay away from pork? Uh, I I feel like some of them, because of this need we have to, I mean, sometimes we're learning from them and sometimes we're having this emotional, catharsis sounds like such a weak word in this moment because we use it so much. But the book I was studying about these horrible fairy tales and how I had to justify them to the Dean of theater, like this is how, (laughs) this is why I'm using these. Um, I'd have paid money to see that conversation. (laughs) That's an interesting conversation. It was just that, like, children have to be scared senseless through fiction because life scares them senseless. Yes. And they have to know that that fear isn't the end of their lives. So if we tell them these scary things, not only do they relate to them because everything is so scary, everything's out of their control, everyone wants to eat them, everyone's a witch, like, everyone's against them. But do you see how we just move on from the scariest things under our bed? Yes. So I, 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 like part of it's memory, part of it's the narrative and part of it's just like, this is how we develop grit. Yes. And we do it young and we continue to do it throughout our lives. And I have noticed that as I stay, he talks about the idea that we are marinated in story all the time. Um, He talks about dreams in this book. And as a Again, from a from a psychology standpoint, I'm very familiar with some of the some of the different theories about how dreams work. Not the not the Freudian stuff, but the the neurological pieces that the conscious part the the, the conscious part of our of our brain um, ceases functioning for a period of time. The subconscious mind never does. Um, we've got to clear out the the mess from the day that was left behind. I, in fact, I used to tell my students it's a story, uh, <laughs> but it, but it would help them understand why they needed to sleep. And why sometimes things were weird. I would say that that basically what happens is all day long, the conscious mind is trying to handle every fire that comes along. And when it's done, it turns over the, the brain to the subconscious mind and says, I'm really sorry, dude. It was a rough day. I'll see you in the morning. And it goes to sleep immediately, right? And the subconscious brain then 
pulls out the rubber gloves and says, fine, I shall clean up after him yet again, and goes through and starts arranging all of the memories and tries to put them into things that make sense. And, you know, according to the book and according to certain kinds of uh, certain psychological uh, research, that's how dreams happen. We're, we're organizing and putting all those things. But most of the dreams we don't remember because the subconscious mind is the one doing it. But every now and again, this, the conscious mind wakes up when they, when they talk about REM sleep, conscious mind wakes up and says, Hey, what are you doing? Oh my gosh, those things don't go together like that. And the, the subconscious mind, I would say, turns around and looks at him and says, get out. <laughs> yeah. This and, is my filing job, not yours. And so the, and so the conscious mind goes, Oh, okay, fine. Be that way. How did those things go together? Make it into a story. Yeah. Um, and that's where we get bizarre, the, the bizarre dreams and, and probably also where we get some of the nightmares. When he was talking about some of these kinds of theories. And of course, they're theories because, uh, yeah, we, we can't really prove them. We can't really prove them. There are stories that seem – oh, there we go again, stories. There are stories that seem to fit the information that we have available to us. There's no way for us to know whether they're actually 100% true or not, at least at this point in time. Maybe one of these days technology will exist that allows us to do that. But right now, as we describe those, makes it very easy to understand that even when we try to turn off this idea of carrying a narrative where we have to avoid trouble, we have to solve problems, we have to, we have to move forward and be successful at handling the trouble of life, our brains are saying, yeah, you know what? It happens all the time and it happens in more ways than you know, and I'm going to keep you as sharp as possible. So if that means that we dream horrible dreams at night and you wake up in a cold sweat, that's fine because it prepares you for tomorrow because you're not reading enough books. Maybe if people read more books, they'd have fewer nightmares. I don't know. But I know for me that kind of works. That is that is a very interesting hypothesis to throw I, out there. I have way fewer nightmares now than I ever did when I was married, when I was spending lots of time in in uh, in my nonfiction studies. When I am, and that's partly got me a little bit afraid about going into a doctoral program because <laughs> I'm going to be spending all my time reading nonfiction again. I'm going to have to make sure that I keep enough uh, keep enough fiction around and watch enough movies and and pay attention to the other stuff. I hope it because it, it, it seems to work. Never, Neverland keeps you safe. Yes, it does. In so many ways. Todd and I had more to say about Jonathan Gottschall's book, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. And you'll get to hear more of that conversation next week when In the Telling brings you part two. I'll leave you today with the caption under an interesting picture on page seven of my copy of The Storytelling Animal. The picture has three gentlemen from a different time. One stares, hands in his trench coat pockets, at a wall of bookshelves. Another is riveted by a book in his hands. The third places a foot gingerly on some rubble, his fingers tugging at one specific book on the shelf. The sky is visible, since all that remains of the roof is a few crossbeams. The ground is a mess worthy of a big-budget Hollywood disaster film. The caption reads, quote, Londoners browse through the library at Holland House after an air raid during the Blitz. Unlike other leisure activities, such as quilting, gambling, or sports, everyone does story in one form or another. We do story even under the worst conditions, even during war. End quote. You can find out more about In the Telling at lizzylizzyliz.com or check out the In the Telling podcast channel on YouTube for bonus content. Theme music by Gordon Vitas. In the Telling is hosted and produced by me, Liz Christensen. Thank you for listening, and stay safe, everybody.
But one of my favorite scenes in Monuments Men is where the guy says, you destroy people's art, you destroy their culture, their history, and who they are. And while this is definitely just a minor corona apocalypse, it is a reminder of how we consume art most often in social situations. And yet, that's not always the case. You have Shostakovich, who premiered his Seventh Symphony in Leningrad while they were being attacked by Nazis, like the city was being attacked and raided. You have Anne Frank writing what she did in hiding. You have Shakespeare. It was never, there's no evidence that he was ever in quarantine, but he did write King Lear when there was a plague outbreak. Like sometimes these things modify and solidify our art. I do worry that future generations will look back at this period and say, okay, so memes, that's what it was. But since so much of our art is shared in a social media format, I think we're all relying on that right now as well. Whether it be texting and group chats or just creating these things of humor and sharing that way. But there still may be people out there painting and creating symphonies and I'm about to go pick up a custom cake that someone has made for a friend of mine, which is her art form. So though it's hard for me to not have this functionality of going out in public and seeing other people and seeing plays, I've been watching a lot of television shows I've had recommended to me for a while. I finally got around to reading a book that I've been holding on to meaning to do that. And I've been making, oh, I've been making a lot of memes and I think all of this is still art because it's almost like that line in Jurassic Park, but replacing the word life with art, art will find a way. 